I invite you to turn in your copy of God's Word to Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8 is we continue our life-changing look at the life of Christ. Mark chapter 8, verses 27 through 33 will be our text. Actually, I'm going to change that. Mark chapter 8, verses 22 through 33 will be our text. Hopefully I'll be able to pull this together in the end. It says there, beginning in Mark chapter 8, verse 22, and they came to Bethsaida. So that's Jesus and his disciples. They came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village And when he had spit on his eyes, laid his hands on him, he asked, do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him home saying, do not even enter the village. Verse 27, and Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. And others say, Elijah. And others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Let's pray. God, show us a glimpse, at least. of the marvelous truth behind all I have is Christ. Lord, up to this passage, no one could sing it. But we get to sing it every day. Show us Christ. Cause us to sing. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Amen. This morning, we find Jesus in Bethsaida with his disciples. He's doing an unusual healing. He heals this blind guy. He doesn't do it all the way. All he does is, all that guy sees at first are people that look like trees. Then he helps him to see fully. Then we find Jesus taking his disciples on a 
mile walk from Bethsaida up to Caesarea Philippi. If you remember, if this is our map of Israel, this is the lake, the Sea of Galilee, this is the Jordan River. Bethsaida is up here, and they're about to walk 25 miles north up into the area of Caesarea Philippi. And on this long walk, probably did in a day, in a day, but on this walk, Peter professes that Jesus is the Christ. Now, no one has ever done that before. No human being. Demons have acknowledged it. God the Father has declared it, but no human being up to this point had confessed that Jesus is the Christ. So this is a big moment. As a matter of fact, this might be the highest climactic moment in the scriptures so far. God's people up to this point, when this text was, you know, what the events were happening in this text, up to this point, they had been waiting 4,000 years for the Christ to show up. That's a long time. 4,000 years. The first time that the Christ was promised to God's people was to Adam and Eve in the garden after they had sinned and they found themselves in desperate need of a savior. And God met them that day like he meets us today with grace. And he covers their nakedness and their shame and he promises them to send the Christ, the savior who would save Eve's offspring from the serpent, from sin, from death. Yes, that first promise, 4,000 years at least before Christ. Now, 2,500 years after that, God promised Moses Essentially the same thing, that he would send the Christ in Deuteronomy chapter 18. 500 years after that, approximately 1000 BC, God promised to send the Christ again, this time to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And all along the way, throughout history, you have God's people waiting, waiting, waiting for their Christ, for their Savior, for their Messiah to show up. And in case you've forgotten or have never been told this, Messiah and Christ, they're synonymous. The Messiah is the Hebrew equivalent to the New Testament Greek equivalent. Messiah is Hebrew. Christ Greek, okay? They're actually both English. Messiah is the English translation of the Hebrew. And Christ is the English translation of the Greek. But they're synonymous. Listen, waiting 4,000 years is a long time. 
That is a long time to wait for God to fulfill his promise, at least from our perspective. And yet, when you get to the New Testament, there they are, waiting, hopeful, trusting, expecting God to send their promised Christ. And so when Peter looks at Jesus and he says, you are the Christ, that is a big moment, church. The Christ has come. The waiting is over. Now, 586 years before Christ, that's when Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian king, conquered the Jews. He came into Judah, the southern kingdom. He wiped out the southern kingdom, destroyed Jerusalem. That's their capital. And the temple was destroyed, the center of their worship of God. Nebuchadnezzar, that Babylonian king, he then made the Jews prisoners of war and he carried them off to be slaves in Babylon. This made the Jewish people hungry for Christ to come and make things right. 300 years after that, the Jews had returned back to Israel under Ezra and Nehemiah. They built the second temple. Well, that's when the Seleucids from Syria under Antiochus Epiphanes IV invaded their country and he defeated the Jews over and over and over again and he defiled their new temple. This made the Jews hungry for the Christ to come and save them. 150 years after that, Jesus walked our planet. God walked our planet. And at that time, Rome occupied Israel. They were a foreign invader, taxing the Jews, crushing the Jews with heavy burdens. This again made the Jews hungry for the Christ, for God to fulfill his promise to them. In AD 6, six years after the birth of Jesus, there was a Jew named Judas the Galilean. Judas the Galilean started a Jewish revolt against his Roman occupiers there in Israel. He started a group named the Sicarii, not Sicarii, Sicarii. Sicarii means dagger men. They were assassins. They would hide daggers under their cloaks, sneak into Roman, where the Roman officials were at there in Israel, and they would secretly murder them. They were hitmen that would kill high-ranking officials and then try to sneak away undetected. 
The historian Josephus said that their passion for liberty from tyranny, that their passion for liberty from the foreign oppressor of Rome was almost unconquerable. They were the Sicarii. Sicarii, by the way, is where the Spanish got their word, Sicario, meaning hitman. Eventually, it was the sons of Judas the Galilean who came to believe that they were the Messiah. So in AD 66, Judas's sons, along with Judas, began a war against their Roman occupiers. This led to the Roman army, army level, leveling Jerusalem in AD 70 and completely destroying the temple once again. To this day, there is still no temple as a result of their actions. Guess where Judas the Galilean lived with his sons? His sons who were alive during the time of Christ. His sons who thought they were the promised Messiah. They lived in a place called Gamala. Where's Gamala? It's on the road to Caesarea Philippi. As a matter of fact, there are scholars who believe that the village of Gamala is one of the villages of Caesarea Philippi mentioned here in verse 27. Could it be that as Jesus and his disciples pass through Gamala, and there's talk of the Messiah living there, as they pass by the home of Judas the Galilean, as they pass by his sons, could it be that that, is when Jesus asks his disciples, who do people say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, you are the Christ. Look back at verse 27, and Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, you are the Christ. Their answer to his first question is rather interesting. John the Baptist, Elijah, one of the prophets. Herod, he's one of the people saying that Jesus is John the Baptist. Herod, of course, has beheaded John. He did a few months prior to this. 
And when Herod later hears of Jesus and his miracles and his power, he thinks to himself, surely this is John the Baptist back from the dead. That's according to Matthew chapter 14, verse 2. Now the second group of people, they believe that Jesus is the Old Testament prophet Elijah. God promised back in Malachi chapter 4, verse 5, that he would send Elijah before the great and awesome day of the Lord. And so there's a group of people who've been exposed to Jesus, and they think Jesus is the fulfillment of that promise. Swing and a miss. The text goes on and says, and others, this third group of people, they think that he's one of the prophets. They didn't think he was John or Elijah, but man, he sure is in the line, the official line of the prophets. Now, if these groups, Herod, group number one, group number two, group number three, if these groups were saying any of these kinds of things about one of us, well, man, that would be a huge compliment. What do you... What do you think about Pastor Rick over there? Well, he might be John the Baptist. He might be Elijah. He might be the fulfillment of Malachi 4 or 5. But he's definitely at least one of the prophets. That would be a huge honor. But not for Jesus. That's because Jesus is better than all the prophets in every way. Come to think of it, he's better than everything in every way. There is not a single prophet who is even close to being better than Jesus at anything. So Jesus continues in verse 29, but who do you say that I am. Can we pause for a moment and just point out the fact that this is the most important question that any one of us will ever answer? Jesus asks, Who do you? Who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, you are the Christ. Jesus, you, you are the promised one from God. You are the one that was promised way back in Genesis 3 to Eve. You're the one that was promised to Moses back in Deuteronomy 18. You're the one that was promised to David there in 2 Samuel Church, we've been, we've been taking a life-changing look now at the life of Jesus ever since 2020. We've been all over the Gospels, all over Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and finally, finally, we have a human being that sees that Jesus is the Christ. But hold on. There's a problem. 
there's a rather big problem. Nobody in Israel, and I, I mean nobody, not even Jesus' disciples at this time, understands who and what the Christ is or why he has come. They think that the Christ is supposed to be a, a triumphant king who is the greatest military leader of all time and he is going to lead them in triumphant military victory over all their enemies. They, they think, because at this point the Jews had been so bombarded by all of their enemies and carried off into as prisoners of war, they've had to leave because of persecution. They think that, that the Messiah is going to come, the Christ is going to come, and he's going to bring back all of their family members that have been dispersed. All of the Jews that are spread out all over the known world, and he thinks they're going to, the, the Christ is going to bring them all back home to Israel, to the promised land. They're thinking that the Christ, he's going to conquer all their enemies. And they're thinking that Christ is going to make Israel the greatest nation in all the world. And Peter and his disciples, not Peter's disciples, Jesus' disciples, Peter's the spokesman for the disciples here, Peter He's saying that the disciples think that they've found this kind of Christ. They've found this man. And soon enough, we're going to find out that they're hoping one day in the very near future that they are going to be sitting on thrones next to Jesus ruling the world. Now that they've discovered that he is the Christ, they're going to start fighting internally among each other trying to figure out which one of them is the greatest so they could send, I'm sorry, so that they could six, sit next to Jesus on his throne. They even send mom after him. So yes, Peter finally reaches the right conclusion about who Jesus is. But he still doesn't understand. He still doesn't get it, as we'll see in a couple of verses. Peter has the right answer with the wrong understanding. Friend, it is very easy to do this when it comes to Jesus. It is so easy for us to try to put Jesus in the box we think he should fit in, all while calling him by the right names. Do we, do you, 
do I understand what he's all about? These guys have been following Jesus for quite some time now. They've listened to him. They've seen him speak with authority. They've seen him shut down religious leaders. They've seen him feed, feed people spiritually and physically. They've been fed physically by him miraculously. They've been saved by him through the raging storms. They've seen his power. Even the winds and the waves obey his voice. They said that. They've seen the crippled run, the blind see, the deaf hear, the mute speak, and the dead brought back to life. And now they have the right answer but they still don't understand. It's like, it's like they could see Jesus, but they couldn't see Jesus. It's like verses 22 through 25. And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? And he looked up and he said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Why does Mark put this in here? Nobody else does. Mark's an artist. Did this happen? Of course it did. But what's this all about, Jesus? Can't you heal people all the way? Of course he can. He's trying to teach his disciples, and he's trying to teach us something. There's times we see Jesus, but we don't see Jesus. It's like he's a tree walking. And then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored and he saw everything clearly. All this to say, be patient with yourself as you try to see Jesus. Sometimes we see, but we don't see. His disciples could see, but they didn't understand. And so, verse 30, he says, and he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. What? Could you imagine coming to Christ, knowing that Jesus is the Christ, discovering he's the Christ, and then Jesus says, shh. What's that all about? 
He knows that if word gets out that he is the Christ, while no one understands the true reason why the Christ has come, chaos will ensue. The Jews will march him down, probably led by the disciples, down to Jerusalem and force him to become king that afternoon. His mission will be hijacked. And so he strictly charges them to tell no one that he is the Christ. And instead, he begins to teach them plainly, clearly, explicitly what it means that he is in fact the Christ. Verse 31, and he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days, rise again. And he said this plainly. Jesus began to correct their bad theology. Jesus the Christ is not going to destroy their enemies. Instead, he's going to love their enemies and bless them and pray for them. And he's going to call them to do the same thing. Jesus, the Christ... He's not going to bring all their family members, all the Israelites, back into the promised land that are dispersed throughout the foreign lands. As a matter of fact, he's going to send his people that are in the promised land out to Judea and Samaria and to the utter ends of the earth. Jesus, the Christ, he did not come to act like a Pharisee and police all the people who were breaking God's laws. The Christ did not come to condemn lawbreakers, but to free them. Jesus, the Christ, he didn't come to be some high, lofty king that's untouchable and demanding that everyone serve him. No, he would be a servant to serve all. Jesus, the Christ, did not come to get. He came to give. Jesus, the Christ, he did not come to make his enemies suffer. He came to suffer for them, to die for them. You see, his life and his mission It was not about 
military victory and success like his disciples thought. It was about rejection and suffering and death. Jesus, the Christ, he left the perfection of heaven to come to the pain and the agony of earth. The giver of life came to our planet to die. Why? To ransom his enemies. To free his enemies. To save Eve's offspring from the serpent. Jesus asked, Who do you say that I am? Do you want to know who? The Christ is. This is Christ. He is God Almighty who left everything to become the suffering servant, slave, the suffering slave who died at the hands of his enemies to save them. This is Christ, the son of the living God. Edward Schweitzer writes, whoever understands the suffering of Jesus understands God. It is there and not in heavenly splendor that one sees the heart of God. For God so loved the world that he gave his son so that you could believe and never die. He did not send him to the world to condemn the world, but to save the world. Jesus says, it says there, he began to teach them. He began to teach them that the Son of Man, he must suffer many things. He must be rejected. He must be killed. Listen, this kind of message did not, could not compute in the mind of his disciples. A suffering Christ, a rejected and dead Messiah? Unthinkable. What good is he? To make matters worse, Jesus tells them that it's not thugs that's going to kill him. It's not the Roman oppressors. It's not the Egyptians or the Assyrians or the Hellenists who will reject him and cause him to suffer. It's the Jews. The most respectable Jews, as a matter of fact, of his day. 
the elders, the chief priests, the scribes. Jesus, you're talking about the Sanhedrin here, our religious leaders, the keepers of the temple, the men who want the Messiah to come more than anybody. They're going to kill you? The murder of Jesus is not going to be some accident, some, some momentary lapse in some foolish person's judgment. It's going to be the predetermined, deliberate, premeditated, planned, coming from the most trained, most knowledgeable, and most respected men in Israel. Jesus will not be lynched by a crazy mob. He will not be assassinated by a hitman. He will not be murdered by a jealous lunatic. Jesus will be arrested with official government warrants and tried and executed by Jewish and Roman jurisprudence. He began to teach them that he must suffer, that he must be rejected, that he must die, and that he must rise again. He said this plainly. This is so unimaginable to Peter that Peter takes him aside and begins to rebuke Jesus. This word rebuke, it's the same Greek word that's used of Jesus rebuking demons. Peter rebukes him. No way, Jesus. There's no way that's who our Messiah is. That's not what we've been hoping for the last 4,000 years. Yes, it is. Praise God. Yes, it is. Do you know this, Jesus? Do you understand how great it is to know a Messiah like this. A savior. A servant. A friend. Do you understand? Let's pray. Thank you, Jesus, for being Jesus, for being the Christ, for being so much more than we could ever dream or ask for. 
thank you. Amen.